But the, the title of the, the short series we're in now, as we're continuing to walk through First Peter, has been entitled by me, Embracing Submission. Embracing submission. And you've probably noticed a, a recurring theme. Every one of the sermons in this series has been embracing something. So I think there's something about the message of First Peter that implies that embracing Jesus is not just some sort of a theoretical or conceptual uh, exercise. It's not the idea of uh, simply um, submitting ourselves to certain beliefs or to certain worldviews or something like that. For Peter, to follow Jesus is a deeply practical system of belief. We're embracing something with all of our lives like a full-on hug of it. And Peter has continued to put before us what it means to follow Jesus. And it means to embrace so many things, some of which are very dangerous for us. In some ways, Jesus has asked us to hug someone holding a knife, you know, or to embrace a gun uh, that could be the end of us. And that makes it hard for the church uh, to truly hear Peter's words. And probably no passage in First Peter will feel more like that than the one we'll read today. Um, from 1 Peter chapter 2. The full passage we've been exploring in this sort of mini-series within our larger series is chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 12. And last week we discussed the first seven verses of that, verses 11 through 17. And in that context, Peter reminded us that Christians, and this is probably one of the harder words we faced in Peter to this point, Christians submit themselves to every authority instituted among humans. What a word. We talked about that last week. Now, for those who were here, you'll recall that we discussed several of the differences, because there were differences. The world in which Peter lived and the world in which we live, they're not the same. And so we discussed social-political differences in the United States today and in the social-political context of the first century A.D. Roman Empire, where Peter and his readers lived. But despite the differences in our context, I was insistent that Peter's words continue to guide Christians despite our context with respect to our relationship to governing authorities. For Peter, we should not be rebellious. We should not be disrespectful. We should not be disdainful. We should not be incorrigible. People who refuse to be corrected. Our posture is one of submission. And for Peter, this posture is the posture of godliness. It's the posture of Christ-likeness. It's the posture of holiness. It's the posture of love. If you're interested in hearing more about that, you can go to our church website. You can listen to that sermon. I'm not going to cover more of it today. But I, I do want to reiterate the reality that I am one who is committed to being the best possible citizens we can in our country. And so I take Peter's words to imply that we as a church, of all the things that we are, should be as submissive to the governing authorities as we possibly can be. Short of, of course, disobeying God Himself, because God is our ultimate authority to whom we submit. And one of the more difficult areas, perhaps you'll agree with this, perhaps you won't, if you ever served on a church board, um, you certainly, I think, will agree with this. One of the more difficult areas it would seem for many churches to submit themselves to the governing authorities is in terms of finances. Even so, I am pleased to report that the board of our church here at New Beginnings has adopted some financial policies as, as recently as our last board meeting this last Thursday that will allow us to be both 
more financially transparent as a congregation, and more in line with government regulations with respect to charitable giving and receiving. I'm excited about that. I don't know if you're excited about it. Now, we'll be announcing those policies. There'll be an insert in the bulletin next week, and then we'll probably call a town hall meeting so you can ask questions to be further uh, informed about that as we go forward. I don't want to discuss the details of it at length now. But I bring up the subject here simply to celebrate that we as a church, these words of Peter, they're more than philosophies to us. They're more than just concepts. They're more than ideas. They are teachings that we are endeavoring to embody in very practical ways as a church. And I hope you're trying to do that as individuals as well. We're seeking to be the best citizens we can be. And we're seeking to be as submissive as we can be. So that the world may witness the example of Jesus in us as they look at our posture before governing authorities. All who seek to follow Jesus must embrace submission, Peter insists. So last week we discussed that posture of submission. This week as we continue in Peter's letter to the Christians in Asia Minor, an area that today is most of modern day Turkey, we'll endeavor to hear Peter's exhortations regarding the purpose of submission. Why do we submit? The question of whether we should submit was last week. Today is the why. Now, we've already discussed the purpose of submission to a degree. And Peter has already suggested, if you were here last week, you'll know this, otherwise you can go back and read those early verses, verses 11 to 17. He's already suggested that the purpose of submission is witness. But he hasn't clarified that very much. And I indicated last week that the purpose of submission is for the transformation of the world and the transformation of worldly ways of living. But those are more conceptual and less practical. I think you'll agree with me that in these next verses of Peter's letter, the purpose of submission takes a much clearer and more practical shape. And we may not be quite ready. If you haven't read ahead, you may be surprised at what we find. So if you have access to a Bible this morning, I'll invite you to turn with me to the New Testament epistle of 1 Peter if you're not already there. We're in chapter 2. As I said last week, we discussed verses 11 to 17. So today I'm going to pick up reading in verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And again, I'm reading from the New International Version. But it's a more updated one than what you have in the pews, so the language is a little bit different. Chapter 2, verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in His mouth. When they hurled their insults at Him, He did not retaliate. When He suffered, He made no threats. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. 
For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. What's the purpose of submission? Well, this passage is difficult for many reasons. Did I need to say that? Did you notice? I'm sure you did. When I started to read verse 18, did anybody think, oh, this one. He's going to preach on this one. Anybody else not read this before and think, what did that say? Is that seriously in the Bible? I know. One nearly insurmountable difficulty in the verses I just read is that the passage addresses two societal issues uh, that were commonplace in the time of the New Testament, but today are viewed both secularly and in many Christian traditions, including our own, as social evils. Slavery and the absolute subordination of women, particularly wives. Now, there are a couple things we need to say as we address this passage. I'm fearful in our own tradition because of our stands in these things that we don't discuss these passages because they're just too difficult for us to deal with. But by skipping this passage in Peter, we miss probably the fundamental point of the entire book. We have to wrestle with what he's trying to say. He is the authoritative word of God, whether we like it or not. So that, might, that should make everybody nervous, no matter what your opinion, when I say something like that. And it was made me nervous too when I read it. So here we go. Now, Peter didn't invent the pattern of this particular conversation. He didn't just decide, you know what I need to do? Let's just talk about slaves and masters and husbands and wives and, and so on and so forth. That was a, a common way of speaking in the first century Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire at large, it was called the Household Code. The Roman people had the idea, and it's not just unique to them, many cultures have believed the same thing. We did too, sort of, up until somewhat recently, that the home should be structured in such a way as to make the people who are raised in it better citizens of the larger community. So the Roman Empire believed that if you wanted people to associate themselves correctly with the government, they needed to have that same basic societal structure in their home and be raised with it from the time they're born. And so the Romans set up a household code that basically was a mirror in the family of the larger Roman society as a way of making good citizens. It's a genius sort of thing to do. It's an indoctrination that builds good citizens from the ground up. And so this household code is commonly used in the Roman Empire. Peter's not inventing it. But what Peter is doing is he's adjusting it. He changes it in the church context. And it's his adjustments that really get to the heart of his point. And I'm going to be highlighting some of those today. We should also probably recognize that slavery in the Roman Empire was of a different sort than that slavery practiced in Europe and America in recent uh, centuries. But even with that said, European and American societies today believe that slavery in all of its forms is an evil and one that should be opposed and overcome by the nations and cultures of the earth. We believe that too in the Church of the Nazarene. And given these strong contemporary opinions, it would be nice to speak with certainty as to what Peter's opinion of slavery as an institution was. Wouldn't it be nice to know what Peter thought about slavery if he could just sit down and tell us his opinions about it and whether it was consistent with the kingdom of God? But in truth, we don't know for certain what Peter would have said. In this passage, Peter does not endorse, nor does he condemn slavery. The societal and familial subordination of women is another issue it would be nice to have had Peter weigh in on. 
In an ideal world, one in which the gospel of Jesus had thoroughly permeated all hearts and minds and homes and governments, and one in which the ethics of the kingdom of God as they have been embodied in Jesus were embraced and embodied by all citizens, what would the relationship between husbands and wives look like in that kind of a world? How would male and females relate? Well, Peter didn't say. I think he may have implied something when he said we were all priests. And that's what we talked about a couple weeks ago. But in these verses, he said nothing overtly about what should be with respect either to slavery or to the place of women in society or, or households. Rather, and this is the most important idea, I guess, that I can try to communicate today. Peter was helping his readers to understand what it means to live as Christians in the midst of the cultures and contexts in which they actually lived. Peter's instructions are not pie-in-the-sky descriptions of how the world ideally should be or will be one day when the kingdom comes in its fullness. Peter's words were written to people living in the world of the Roman Empire in the first century AD. And that was a society that was in many ways built upon the societal distinctions between slaves and masters and between husbands and wives in the home. Peter was instructing people who lived in a society which condoned and even commanded this sort of behavior as to how to live in a posture of submission in that context. So Peter didn't ask the question, how should the world be? What kind of world is the gospel describing ideally? That's not his question. He didn't try to describe what that society would look like. Instead, Peter asked a different question. And for those living in fallen context, perhaps some of you are there today, touched by the sin of this world, the question of the way the world should be is less important sometimes than the question of how to live godly in it. Rather than asking what should the world look like, Peter asked, why are you refusing to submit? It's a different question, isn't it? And then he has followed up that question with a more pointed one. Is that attitude, that refusal to submit, consistent with the example set for us by Jesus? Now it's not unimportant, don't hear me wrong, to know what behaviors God values and what ethics God would ideally wish societies and families and individuals to embody. We need to know that. We need to know what the vision of the kingdom is. And there are passages in Scripture that deal with those issues. However, what I believe Peter has avoided here, and I want you to hear this, is the impression that in order to be a Christian person, that person has to live in a thoroughly Christian context. In other words, by focusing too intently on the world as it should be, we can be left believing that we cannot live as Christians in the world as it is. Transforming the world, that's a noble goal. It's usually given to the young. Sometimes the old too, but mostly the young. Where we look out in the world and we see all the things we'd like to change about it and we set out on a course to make everything better. That's a noble goal. And the Gospel has words to say about that. We can find it in the Prophets. We can find it in Paul. We can find it in the Confessions of the Gospel. But living as Christians in the world, no matter the context, is far more important in this time between the times. Changing the world is, is noble. It's laudable. But we need to know how to live if the world doesn't change. And that's what Peter's interested in. Well, my father's mother was a young girl. Her dad was very much opposed to her burgeoning Christian faith. And so he had commanded her not to go to church. 
which she didn't want to do. But the story that our family has passed on has said that her father was a fairly influential man in the small town in Massachusetts in which she grew up. And he threatened her that if, he, if anybody saw her walking to church, he would make sure that the police had standing orders to pick her up and bring her home as a runaway. Now, we don't know if he would have followed through on that or not, but she was only, I think, uh, 10 or 11 years old, my dad could say for certain. And so she believed him, as we do when we're that age. And there was a, a, a man uh, in the church in which she was attending who she shared that with, an older man, and, and he agreed to pick her up uh, and drive her to church so she wouldn't be seen walking. And she took him up on that. Now, my grandmother wasn't interested in what it would be like to live a Christian life in a Christian home with Christian parents who encouraged her on her faith journey. That was not interesting to her because that was not the home in which she lived. She needed to know how to live as a Christian in a home that was not godly under the rulership of a father who was actively trying to sabotage her faith in Jesus in any way he could. She needed to know what it looked like to live as a Christian in that world. And Peter's people were asking the same question. Peter's words insist that Christians must live as Christians no matter the ethics, no matter the values, no matter the laws of the societies in which we live. And by exhorting Christians to live in submission to every authority instituted among humans in verse 13, Peter has suggested that submission will look different in every context in which the church finds itself. The government and society will set the terms of submission, and as Christians we must submit to them for the Lord's sake. Unless, of course, submission to them would cause us to live in disobedience to God. And so in the Roman Empire of Peter's day, slaves were expected to submit to their masters. That's the expectation of the culture. And throughout most of the history of the Near East, up to and including the Roman Empire of the first century, wives were expected to submit to their husbands as the heads of households. It's the way the entire society was structured. And Peter didn't weigh on the ethics. He didn't weigh in on the ethics of those requirements. He doesn't make a mention on whether he liked the way Rome was set up. Nor did he advocate for Christians to rebel against those standards. For Peter, the posture of Christianity is submission, and so Christians embrace submission in whatever form their respective governments and societies require it. That's part of our witness. So now that I've said all that, shall we listen again to Peter's words in verse, beginning in verse 18? Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in His mouth. When they hurled their insults at Him, He did not retaliate. When He suffered, He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, 
They may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty, or you might as well read in the first century Roman context, your persuasiveness, because that's what's implied in beauty, your persuasiveness, should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, your persuasiveness should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right. Do not give way to fear. Living submissively in the midst of injustice is no simple decision, and nor is it apparently a wise one. Is it? Anybody reading that go, that is foolishness. I know, the gospel usually is. <laughs> Perhaps we've all heard the old adage, all it takes for evil to prosper is for good people to do nothing. You've heard that? Me too. And resistance to authority, it's not categorically condemned in the scriptures. But it is important, and we should note, that Peter has made it clear that all of our submission to authorities is in the end submission to God first. And along those lines, the scriptures are replete with examples of followers of God having to refuse to obey governing authorities out of reverence to God. A few come immediately to mind. I'm sure you can think of others. Daniel's refusal to stop praying when he was commanded in his culture to no longer pray to any god but to the king. He refused to do that. He prayed anyway. It ended him in a lion's den. You remember the story. He, of course, submitted to the consequences of that obedience, uh, disobedience, didn't he? We talked about that last week. But Daniel, Peter and John were taken before the ruling authorities of the Jewish people and they were commanded not to preach anymore in Jesus' name. Peter and John couldn't do that. They ignored that command and they preached anyway. So the Bible has examples of this sort of resistance. However, let's admit together that it's rare in our context that submission to the government would force us to live in disobedience to God. That's rare. And principally for Peter, rather than attempting to change unjust societal structures through rebellion or through violence, we are to follow the model of Jesus who saved the wicked world through His willingness to suffer and die at the hands of ungodly people. Because the kingdom of God allows no compromise with its cardinal virtue of submissiveness, those who are members of the kingdom must not endorse a rebellious spirit even in the face of unjust persecution. Nothing justifies disobedience to God no matter how violent the reason. This is Peter's insistence. So the posture of Christians and the posture of the church as the posture of Jesus on the cross gives shapes to us is a posture of submission. But what's the purpose? Right here I'm talking all day about the posture again. And we just talked about that last week. What is the purpose? Why should we adopt that posture? Well, as I've said, Peter has suggested that the purpose of submission is witness, but he's now made that clearer. And I indicated last week that the purpose of submission is for the transformation of the world and worldly ways of living. But in these verses, Peter has really given submission transformative teeth. Did you catch his words? We're going to read it one more time. Look at verse 19. I'll skip 18. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called. 
for this purpose you were called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in His mouth. When they hurled their insults at Him, He did not retaliate. When He suffered, He made no threats. Instead, He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray. But now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. The purpose of submission in these verses are primarily two. Personal transformation and the sharing of the gospel. Peter encouraged slaves to submit even to ungodly and harsh masters. Not because beatings are good for us. Or because that's a good way for spiritual formation to occur. He doesn't say any of that. Not because slavery is something God endorses or loves. And he certainly doesn't say, Peter doesn't, that God inspired the Roman Empire's use of slavery and that all nations on earth should submit to Rome because God guided Rome to invent slavery. He doesn't say any of those things. Instead, Peter has insisted that those who submit to unjust treatment because of their submission to the example of Jesus will be commended before God and transformed into the image of God as has been represented in Jesus. That willingness for Peter is part of what it means to be made holy. If we wish to be transformed into the image of God as God's image has been embodied in Jesus, then we must be willing to suffer disrespect, indignity, and injustice. By embracing submission in these circumstances, we will be transformed. So let me give you a few things that Christians should never say if they're following Jesus. But He didn't show me any respect! That's not fair! You can say it, I mean... But it can't be used to transform our behavior into something vindictive. Or, I'm not submitting to anybody that doesn't do what I would do in their situation. Good luck with Caesar. Christians don't say these things, not because we want to be disrespected, not because it's fair or right for the powerful to abuse the weak, These are sinful, horrible things. For these reasons, God will bring judgment on this earth and He will upend the societies of this earth as He brings His own kingdom in fullness when Jesus returns. The world is under judgment because of those behaviors. They're not okay. But it is not for us to become the evil we wish to overcome. It's for us to follow the example of Jesus. And Peter encouraged wives to submit to their husbands, not because, and he doesn't say any of this, right? We read it all in, don't we? He doesn't say that wives should submit to their husbands because women are innately inferior to men. Which is what Rome thought. That women were intellectually inferior. And that they were incapable of leading. That's what Rome thought. Peter doesn't say they're right. Never does he say that. Peter doesn't say that men were created to rule and women to serve. Peter doesn't say that. He doesn't say that the Roman Empire and its understanding of household relationships was inspired by God. He doesn't say any of that. We're reading it in. 
Instead, Peter encouraged wives to submit to their husbands for a reason. Because it was considered right in that culture and through that behavior, their husbands might be one to Jesus. Evil is overcome. People are transformed. And the gospel of Jesus is spread for Peter, not by revolution, or by rebelliousness, or disrespect, or disdain, or vindictiveness, or venomous posts on Facebook. <laughs> not how the world is transformed. Matter of fact, every time Christians do that, we smear the name of God. Evil is overcome and people are transformed by submission. Submission in its many forms. Respectfulness, honor, and civility. This is the weapon of war of the kingdom of God. This is the purpose of submission and this is the avenue through which followers of Jesus are transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Unbelieving neighbors are confronted with the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus and godless societies are upended. The Apostle Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I believe Peter and Paul... They're, they're seeing something similar. We would expect that, right? Both apostles, both commissioned by Jesus. They're seeing something similar here. And they've both spoken against, I can admit this, common sense. This is not common sense. This is countercultural sense. This is uncommon sense. This is foolishness. I understand that. How could we possibly defeat an enemy or change the world if we're subjugated or even killed? I mean, dead people are like trees falling in an abandoned wood, right? Whatever they say, nobody heard it. So if they're dead, how can they change the world? Subordinate people are doormats, and no doormat has ever overthrown a nation. Right? But our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the one oppressing us. That's not the war we're fighting. It's not against the governments we don't agree with. That's not the battle that's been given us to wage. The mission of God's priests in the world is not to defeat enemies or overcome nations or to set up a kingdom of God on earth. That's why Peter keeps calling us exiles in the world. Our battle is against forces that rule this world. And the only way to defeat those forces of evil is to refuse to cooperate with them. To war against the evil powers within us we must submit to God and to the authorities God has established. Submission declaws our evil impulses. It sacrifices our pride and our belief that we have a right to be treated in a certain way. Our feeling that we should be able to demand proper treatment from those around us and we should be able to punish them if they don't give us what we believe we deserve. Submission declaws those impulses. And it reorients us in the world to people who look more like Jesus and less like the world. To war against the dominance of wickedness, we must live differently. That the world may see an alternate way of living. So that through that comparison between us and themselves, they might be able to judge their own values and their own societies. But when we do nothing but mirror them, we provide no option for them to see their wrongness. 
We look just like them. And they treat us like we're part of them. And we're seeing that happen in America today. We're challenged by Peter's last statement in chapter 3, verse 6. You are her daughters, Sarah's daughters, if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. In the end, submission is a matter of trust. Trust in God and in God's way. Jesus had to submit himself to God's way, even though we remember the story in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was betrayed, he asked for another way. He didn't want to do it either. At least not in his human self, and we can debate all that. But he, he professed to God, if, if you can take this cup from me, would you do it? But in the end, he submitted to God's will. He trusted God, even if he didn't understand. And we must come to trust God as well. Revolution and rebelliousness. We like to believe they're born out of zeal or righteousness or, or, or love of God. But the truth of the matter is rebelliousness and revolution, they're not born out of righteousness or justice or zeal for God and truth. If we're really honest about it, these things are born out of fear. We are afraid. And we fight back. The way a bear fights when its cubs are under threat. They're afraid. And fear makes them bare their teeth. It's fear that makes us take up arms. Fear of our safety, fear for our families, fear for our beliefs, fear for our security. It's fear. And we must not give in to fear. We must pattern our lives and our families and our churches after the pattern of Jesus, who held this life and all that was in it with an open hand. He did not grasp to hold on to it. We must embrace submission and we must trust God that through our posture of submission, God's purposes of transformation and witness will be fulfilled. That by refusing to cooperate with the powers of evil that rule this world, we will defeat them because we refuse to be touched by them. We refuse to partner in them. To use our analogy from last week, we refuse to put the one ring on even for the best of causes. And the question that I think Peter has asked me, and he asked me first, believe it or not, this week, and I wasn't sure how I would respond with honesty, will you follow Jesus by embracing submission today? I had to answer that. And now it's for you to answer. Will we truly follow Jesus? Jesus was asked on several occasions what it would mean to be a disciple. What it would mean to truly follow Him. And in two of the Gospels, we're told that he said, anyone who wishes to become my disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, which was a death sentence, and follow me. This is what it means to follow Jesus. There is no other way. This is the road to eternal life. It's the road to transformation. Will the powerful abuse us? Sure. Will they take advantage of this? I'm sure. But next week's sermon is about the powerful. So they'll get theirs next week. <laughs> this is for us this week who don't have the power and we're being disrespected and we're being treated unkindly and our reaction is to defend ourselves, to respond with rebelliousness and vindictiveness, to respond with hate and venom because we're being mistreated and we don't like it. And gospel never says you should like it. I don't think at any point Jesus thought, that nail feels great. Yes. One more time! But he took it. 
because he believed God when God said, this is how I will change everything. That's the battle we face in those moments. I have failed in this. Some of you, I, this is sort of a promotion, I suppose, of sorts, but uh, finally did my first book has been published. I'm not the only author, thankfully. It's how it got published. Um, I wrote one chapter, an introductory chapter in it. It's called One in Christ. You can buy it on Amazon. That's all the promotion I'll do. But in that chapter that I wrote, I made a, a, a confession, a revelation, that in my first pastorate some 13 years ago when I began, um, I had a situation in which a lay person in the church did not agree with the decision that I made as a youth pastor. And they weren't just saying they didn't like it. They accused me of raising money under false pretenses. That I said I was raising money for one thing and then used it for another. I was petrified. I mean, I was being attacked. I mean, that's criminal, right? I mean, things could have happened. And so here was my opportunity, right, to be truly Christ-like, to take one for the team, to reach out for submission and to care about another person and try and seek reconciliation. But that's not what happened because it's never what happens when you're petrified. And I was petrified. And so what I did was I reached out to those who were part of my ministry and I said, this is the accusation coming against me. I need you to defend me. And I did not realize how influential my presence had been in that church because they all surrounded me and they attacked the person who had attacked me and the person left the church. And at the time I thought that I had been vindicated and in time I've realized and this week realized again that I had brought shame on the name of God. This is not what we do. This is not who we are. I hope that you'll join with me in recognizing that it's hard to overcome how we've been raised. We live in a dangerous world and it creates great fear in us. And we've, we're accustomed to protecting ourselves and defending our honor and, and, and guarding our families. And the Gospel says a very hard word to us. It says that the way to eternal life is another way. It's a way foreign to our instincts. It's a way foreign to our common sense. And it's a way foreign to the nations of the earth. And it can only be seen in Jesus. This is the mystery revealed. I hope that you'll join with me in accepting that we may have failed in this way in the past, but it is our intention to follow Jesus. I hope it's yours. It certainly has become mine. As I repent today of my own failures, I hope you will of yours. Would you stand with me?